So uh, this morning, I will be continuing our kind of walk and journey through the book of Philippians. Caleb started it two weeks ago. Um, And last week, he preached on Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. And that passage says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all make, sorry, let me say that again, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So after his typical greeting at the very start of the letter, Paul says these things to let the Philippians know how grateful he is for them. In particular, he's grateful for how supportive they have been of his gospel ministry, how they have been partners with him in that. That's a theme that is a reality that you'll see Paul bring up numerous times throughout this letter. Um, that's something he, he restates himself a lot in the book of Philippians. Caleb mentioned this before, and I'm going to encourage you to do it again. As we are going through this book, try to take time every day to read through the whole letter. It's just four chapters. Um, it is amazing the connections you will see between different passages if you're reading through the thing as a whole. Um, as this week, as I was preparing this sermon, that's what I was doing. I was trying to read. Um, I would pay some close attention to the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning, and then I'd read the book as a whole. And I'd see connections with other verses later on to this passage. And it was amazing how frequently that happened to me every time I came back to it. So I'd encourage you guys to do that. Look at this letter as a whole and look at how these are just pieces of that whole and how they all fit together. But like I said, um, they were, the Philippians, Paul's ministry partners. They were a deep encouragement to him, and coming out of verses three through five, he wants to be an encouragement to them. And that's where we come to our passage this morning in Philippians 1, verses six through 11. These verses are a result of that, of him wanting to be an encouragement to them. They've been an encouragement to him. He wants to be that in return. And so these verses that we're going to read are Paul seeking to be that source of encouragement to this church. Um, There's a reason that this book is called the Epistle of Joy. There's a reason why we titled our sermon series that. Because... Paul wants to help the Philippians experience the same kind of joy that he experiences. And so we see him beginning to do that in these verses that we're going to look at. And he wants to do that because of all people, he knows how hard ministry is. Caleb mentioned this last week, but remember, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Whether he was under house arrest or whether he was in an actual jail, he was imprisoned while he was writing this letter. He knows how hard it is to persevere in ministry, what hardships come from that. And he knows that they know that also. Again, if you read throughout the letter, you see hints of examples that Paul knows are trials and hardships that they're dealing with in their current circumstances as a church. He's heard from from others. He knows what's going on, and we see hints of that. They've got enemies to contend with. He mentions in uh, chapter three, verse two, he tells them to look out for the evildoers. He's recognizing there's people outside of the church that are trying to sabotage them. 
He's acknowledging that. So he knows that's a battle they're contending against and fighting. They've got disagreements within their own church that they have to deal with. He says in chapter four how Euodia and Syntyche, they have disagreements that he wants them to put aside in chapter four, verse two. And in chapter four, verse three, he's encouraging the church as a whole to come alongside them to establish unity and peace again. So again, there's disagreements within their own body that they're needing to, to deal with and wrestle through. And finally, they've got their own sinful natures to contend with. And this is probably the most discouraging and defeating area of all. Um, nothing will ruin one's life or ministry more than one's own sin. And Paul knows that. He knows the hardships that they're facing, both within their own hearts and church and outside of the church through persecution. And as a good leader, as a good shepherd of them, he's seeking to, in a sense, boost their morale. He wants to encourage them. He wants to motivate them to press on through the hardship. And so that's where we get to uh, our verses this morning. So keep that in mind as we look at Philippians 1, verses 6 through 11. And if you haven't turned there already, I, I invite you to do that now. It's on page 980 in the Black Pew Bibles. Um, I don't know what's, what page it's on in the, the white ones. But, um, but yeah, if you could turn to page 980, that would be great. I want you guys to follow along as I read this. And again, note the encouragement that Paul is trying to give to the Philippian church. I want this to be our encouragement this morning as well. So God's word says this in Philippians 1, verses six through 11. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let me go back. I actually want to reread verse six. It says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That verse, in a lot of ways, sums up much of what Paul says throughout the rest of this letter. It is the bedrock of much of the hope that he wants to give to the Philippian church. It is his source of joy, and he wants it to be their source of joy also. He expects them to finish the hard race that they are running. And as he puts it in verse 10, he is confident that they will be pure and blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. It's his promise and prayer for them. And he hopes that this letter would motivate them when they inevitably grow faint-hearted in that pursuit. And that's my hope. Like I said, my hope is the same thing for all of us this morning. Have you ever felt faint-hearted or discouraged? Have you ever wondered 
whether it's actually worth it to keep fighting sin. Maybe there's a particular sin struggle that you deal with that just seems to have, that just seems to enslave your heart. You keep coming back to it. Do you ever just wonder, is it worth it to keep fighting it? Wouldn't it just be easier and better to just give in to it? Have you ever questioned whether you should keep going in a particularly hard life or ministry situation or scenario? Are you just at your wit's end? You don't know what to do and you wonder, should I keep pushing? Should I keep persevering? Or should I just give up and walk away from this situation? Have you ever felt that? Maybe you have even pictured yourself falling away from the faith. Maybe that is some of you. Maybe that's some of you now. Maybe you've pictured yourself falling away from Christ, turning your back on him, because you feel like you're barely holding on as it is already. Can you relate to any of those things? Friends, I know. I know that you can. I know that every one of us can relate to one, if not all, of those things. I mean, God knows that I can relate to those things. Just as an example, this week, I wanted to give up on this sermon. I did not want to preach today. Um, I was already dealing with a really discouraging week um, for much of the week, but then on Thursday, my family actually got news that um, a two-year-old little boy that my sister and brother-in-law were hoping to adopt from Ukraine, he actually passed away uh, from medical complications. Uh, He was growing up in an orphanage that he was never even allowed to leave his room. Um, And my family was so excited to give him um, a better life than that. But that's obviously not going to happen now. And the news of his death literally came the day after uh, they had been told that all of their paperwork was approved, everything was done, and the next step was for my sister and brother-in-law to get to go to Ukraine and actually meet him for the first time. But again, that's not going to happen. He never got to meet the family that already loved him and longed to be with him so much. He was going to be home soon, but then he was gone. And I, I couldn't take that this week. Um, I felt like I was being consumed by my grief, and I couldn't see anything but that. And I wanted to call Caleb and tell him, man, I can't preach this Sunday. Um, I can't wrap my mind around this text to, in any way that would be beneficial for this congregation. I wanted to give up on the responsibility and commitment I had made. I didn't think I could persevere. Now, by God's grace, as you can see, um, I I was able to do that, again, by God's grace. Um, But I guess... I guess it's up to you guys to judge on whether or not that was a good thing when we get to the end of the sermon. Um, You're the ones that have to sit and listen to me. Uh, But anyway, my point is not to just air my woes and struggles from this week. That's not why I bring this up. I bring this up simply as an example that is true for me and is true, I know, for all of you as well. 
I'm sure you haven't had this exact same example in your own life, but none of us will pass through this life unscathed. This is just one example in my life, but you all have plenty of others too, of discouragement, of feeling like you are at the end of the line, of feeling like you don't know how you will be able to continue. None of us will walk through the Christian life and not question or doubt when things get hard. We will want to give up in various ways. It's not right. We shouldn't do that, but we will. Every single one of us will. And Paul knew that. He knew that of the Philippians, which is why he gave them these verses. And God knows that of us too, which is why he has passed his word down through the centuries to us to learn from and be encouraged by also. He has these words for us this morning too. So that's my proposition for this sermon is that encouragement. Basically, verse six. God will complete the good work that he has started in you as you grow in love and truth through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's long, so I'll restate it, and I have it up on the slide, so if you're taking notes, you can write it down. But again, my hope, my prayer for you this morning is that you would know, not just understand, but actually believe this reality that God will complete the good work that he started in you as you grow in love and truth through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to be confident in that, just as Paul wanted the Philippians to be confident in that. And the way that I want to help you grow in that confidence is by looking at three things. So this is just helping you understand kind of the path we're gonna take through this sermon we're gonna look at three things that Paul addresses in this passage. We're gonna see a promise, a prayer, and a source of power. So again, those are the three things that we're gonna look at this morning. Promise, prayer, and power. And I even alliterated for you to help you remember those things. So you're welcome. Um, But yeah, my hope is that as we look at those three things, your heart will be eagerly anticipating the fact that God has started a work in you if you have faith in Jesus Christ and he will complete that work in you and that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. So um, we'll get started by looking at Paul's promise to the Philippians. So again, let's look one more time at verse six. It says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that, in a nutshell, is the promise that Paul is making. He wants them to know that he truly believes that God has already started a good work in them and that he will finish that good work. And this promise is really striking to me because it seems like Paul is really going out on a limb, if you think about it. How can he know that? How can he say, and I am sure of this? He's not just saying, this is probably the case. I hope this is true for you. He's saying, I am sure of this. But what if, how can he know that? What if they eventually fall away from the faith? We can't truly know another person's heart or standing before God, right? That's 
what we, t- what we oftentimes will say to one another. We can't truly know one another's hearts. So how can he say that? He says that he is certain God will complete the good work that he is certain God has already started in them. How can he say that? And the thing is, I think he knows that they, would, that they the Philippians, would be just as skeptical about hearing that as at least I am. Maybe you're not as well, but I'm skeptical of that. And I think he knew they would be a little skeptical skeptical or curious about that statement, how he could make such a bold claim. So he explains himself in verses seven and eight. So look with me at that. I'm gonna read those two verses again, but pay close attention to Paul's line of reasoning here. He builds an argument for why he is sure God will complete his good work in them. So let's look at verses seven and eight. He says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. So there, there we have. So that promise that he gives, that God who began a good work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, it is right for me to feel that way. So Paul is saying, it's right for me to think that because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that a strange argument that he's making there? If you follow his train of thought, he is saying that he is confident that they will persevere till the end because, not because like he knows their their faith or like he, he sees the clear and like abundant work of the Holy Spirit in them. He says he knows and is confident that they will persevere until the end because of his love for them. It's because he holds them in his heart, as he says in verse seven. But it's more than that, because if you look at verse eight, he's basically repeating, his, repeating himself. For God is my witness. He's saying, like, really, I really, really mean this. God can attest to this fact I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So see that. He's not just yearning with his own affection. It's not just his own love and care for them. It's not just that he likes them a lot. He's saying he yearns for them with the affection of Christ. It's Christ's affection on top of his own that he feels for them. It's that Christ has supernaturally increased and deepened his love for them. But even with that, how can Paul know that? And that's where the second half of verse seven comes in. It's because they are partakers with him of the grace of God. And they have demonstrated evidence of that as they have partnered with him in ministry through both the good times and the terribly bad times. And that's why he mentions his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is saying, my love for you is a love that is supernatural and it is the product of our our incredible partnership through thick and thin in ministry together. Now, I know that that might still be kind of confusing. So let me put it this way. 
Why is he confident that God will complete his good work in them? Because Paul has a deep and supernatural love for them that is not simply the product of them liking the same music or movies or sports or whatever the case may be. Like I was just saying, his love for them is the product of war. Do you see what I mean? It's a love built in the trenches and hard-fought ministry. It's a love developed through camaraderie and killing sin and enduring suffering together. They've battled sin together. They've comforted each other in hardship and through tears. They've pushed each other to see the gospel spread even amidst persecution. People were being martyred. They know people who, that they love have been killed. They've comforted each other's families through these things. They supported one another through intense pain. This kind of love that Paul is talking about here, this kind of love and friendship is the kind, I was trying to think like, where have I seen this before? And it made me think about like Black Hawk Down or like Band of Brothers, movies or or things like that. It's a kind of love that only exists in, in kind of, from a worldly standpoint, a kind of love that exists between brothers on the physical battlefield where it's life and death situations. Leave no man behind. Support each other no matter what. Bring every person home. That kind of love. But I've thought about this for a lot throughout the years. Why, why do we only have that? Why is that only seen today on the battlefield, on the physical battlefield, when we are in spiritual war every single day as a church. I think Paul got that. Paul recognized that. He acknowledged that. Why doesn't the church have that more? It should exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, I'm even more convinced of that now having studied this passage because I think that is exactly the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. Paul recognizes that he has a love, uh, Paul recognizes that he has that kind of love for the Philippians. And he acknowledges that that love, a love like that, develops only by God's grace as people toil together through ministry and hardship for the name of Christ. And he is confident that since they have partnered so closely with him in ministry and through so much hardship, their faith must be genuine. I think that's what he means when he's talking about those things in verses seven and eight. A love that he has with them could only come about through shared faith and grace through Jesus Christ as two people toil together against the world for the sake and name of Jesus Christ. Redeemer, I want that for us. I want what Paul had with the Philippians to exist here. I want us to be able to say to each other, brother or sister, we have been through so much together. We have battled sin together. We have wept and rejoiced together. The Lord has used you to help me persevere in the faith I see clear evidence of his grace in your life. And because of that, God will finish the work that he has started in you. The love in my heart for you is actually proof of that. Church, I don't think many of us can say that with confidence to each other. 
Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. But I don't think so. Because that kind of love and fellowship and friendship is not common. It's not normal. It takes intense intentionality and effort. But we can experience it. So let's make it our aim as a church to have those kinds of friendships with each other. Let's go to war together. Friends, let others into your life. Remember that privacy is the enemy of this kind of love. And when others let you into their lives, be their comrade in arms. Do what Paul said to the Thessalonians. Admonish the idol. Or what he means by that is admonish those who are in sin. Encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Let's partner to the, together in the gospel and experience this kind of supernatural love of Christ towards one another. That way, we won't have to just tell each other about Christ's love. We're actually incarnating it for one another through our relationships together. We will actually feel the affection of Christ for one another through one another. I hope for that for our church. We will be able to believe God's love and commitment to us because our brothers and sisters are demonstrating it to us. And as we partner in ministry, it will be even more evident to us that he who began a good work in, in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's why I want us to share in this kind of fellowship because that reality, that promise that Paul is giving us will be even more evident to us as we go through life together. But Paul goes on to say more. Because he is confident of that promise, he has a prayer for the Philippians. So that's my second point and where I want us to go next. As a recap, Paul has just assured the Philippians that God will finish uh, the work that he started in them. And, he, and he's explained why he thinks that's true. Then he states verse 9. So look with me at that verse and the first half of verse 10. So Paul goes on to say this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. We'll stop there. So why does he say that? Why is that his prayer? Paul has given us a prayer here. This is what he's praying to God for the Philippians. Um, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. But then he goes on. Look with me at the rest of verse 10 and 11. Why does he have that prayer? Um, and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that is his prayer, so that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So do you see what Paul is doing there? His prayer isn't a change of subject. It might seem that way at first glance. He's talking about this work that God's completing in them. And then he has this prayer where he's not actually talking about that work. He's just talking about how he wants them to grow. But that isn't a change of subject. He's not moving on to another thought. We know that because verses 10 and 11 are basically a continuation of verse 6. He's coming back to the exact same idea and just elaborating on it. What he meant by God completing the good work in them is that... 
When Jesus returns, they will be pure and blameless and filled with the righteousness of Christ to the glory of God. That's what he means by that. That's the good work that God will complete. They will be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. So that means that Paul is praying that prayer for the Philippians because he knows that the means by which, that that is the means by which God will complete that work. They will be pure and blameless so long as their love abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he is praying that they would experience that. He wants them to continually grow in love and truth because he knows that if they do, they will be pure and blameless upon Christ's return. So we see, and I want to note that we see this pairing of love and truth multiple times just in this short letter. I actually have a number of passages here in my notes that um, I could bring up. I'm only gonna, I'm gonna cut a couple of them out because I think I'm gonna be long in this sermon. I already can tell. So, um, if you have your Bibles already open, look at first, uh, look at Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28. I think Paul, or yeah, Paul is elaborating on this idea of pairing love and truth together in the life of the church in these verses. In Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28, he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, and here's the key, in one spirit, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there we see them in one spirit with one mind. This love and um, truth being paired together, they're united in those things, working side by side in the gospel, not at odds with one another, but together in love and truth, so that they are not frightened in anything by their opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we see that love and truth being paired in their experience together, in their lives. Then Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Again, we see there, the mind, it's their knowledge and all discernment, the truth they are to hold to. Be of one mind, be together in that. Having the same love, sharing in love together being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a perfect display right there of what it means to pair love and truth together in our lives. That's a perfect example of what that looks like. Redeemer, let's heed Paul's prayer here. Truth without love is not a sign of maturity. You might be able to teach a seminary course. You might be able to fill out um, our here at Redeemer, our elder doctrinal questionnaire, which, just so you know, it's really long. It's over 100 questions, multiple parts per question, just very elaborate. You might be able to fill all of that out without referencing a single systematic theology. If that's true for you, you are far 
more knowledgeable than I am. Um, but guess what? You might have that knowledge. You might know a lot of doctrine. But if you can't communicate that truth in love, if the truths that you know don't make you a gentler, kinder, more patient person, then your knowledge is worthless. You aren't following the God you claim to know and understand. You need to know that. On the other hand, though, love without truth is also not a sign of maturity. You might have the most compassionate heart of anyone around you. You might be able to befriend anyone and everyone, and everyone might come away from a conversation with you feeling cared for and loved. But guess what? If your love doesn't compel you to at times say hard but true things for the sake of the other person, or if your aim is simply to make others feel good regardless of what's true, then your love for them is just blind affirmation. And that's not caring or loving at all. So as a church and as individuals, we should desire to both temper our truth with love and to inform our love with truth. It's a both and. This is where it's so important for us to know ourselves well. Do you know which way you lean towards love or truth more? We're all going to lean one way or the other, typically. Um, we all tend to kind of fall off one side of the horse or the other. So know that tendency in yourself and be aware that evidence of grace, evidence of gospel maturity is pairing both, balancing both in our lives. So let's work on that in our own hearts. Think back to the three major themes that Caleb mentioned would be recurring throughout the book of Philippians. The second one he mentioned was Paul's call to humble Christ-likeness among God's people. That's something that you're gonna see us called to over and over again in this book. Well, this pairing of love and truth this prayer that Paul has that they would abound, their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that is a way to move towards that humble Christ-likeness that, that Caleb mentioned. As we grow in love and truth, we become more like Jesus. He is the embodiment of love and truth displayed in perfect unison and fullness. And so as we demonstrate those things together ourselves, we are becoming more like him. It shouldn't surprise us then when Paul says, getting back to Philippians 1, that growing in love and truth will lead us to approve what is excellent. Basically, approve of the things of God, to, to like the things that God likes, to dislike the things that he dislikes, so that we would be pure and blameless as Jesus is pure and blameless, so we will be too as we grow in love and truth. But how do we do that? How do we actually grow in this? And that brings us to my final point, the source of power behind Paul's promise and prayer. And that's what we're gonna focus on now. So up until this point, I haven't really addressed the key to all of this. Um, the key, the foundation, the root behind all of 
what we have already been looking at. And I hope you're wondering about that. I haven't answered some of the most fundamental questions that these, these verses beg of us. Why should we, Redeemer Church, believe Paul's promise? He doesn't know us, so he doesn't hold us in his heart. When he said that, he was talking specifically about the Philippian church. So why should we believe this promise too? And better yet, why was Paul even able to say that about the Philippians? Sure, he saw evidence of grace in them in the past, in his past and present experiences with them. But what was stopping them from eventually turning away later on in life? We still haven't talked about why Paul could know that they would persevere until the end. We just know that that's what he's promising to them. So how can we know that the good work started in us will actually be finished? What is stopping us from making a shipwreck of our own faith? Now, friends, if we look honestly at, our shell, at ourselves, we have to ask those questions. As I said at the beginning, we all question and doubt, even when things aren't, aren't even really that bad. And left to ourselves, we would all stop fighting since once we got sin once we got tired of the struggle. It's too appealing to us. We have to acknowledge that about ourselves. I mean, I just think about a few areas of sin in my own life. Just to list a couple. Entitlement. I feel entitled to a lot of different things. Um, I compare myself to others all of the time. I have a complaining, grumbling spirit my default mode is not to look at the good in things. My default mode is to look at what's bad, what I don't like. My default is to be negative about stuff. Caleb, I bring those things up because, and those things were, are, have been fresh on my mind because Caleb talked about each one of those sins last week in his sermon. He talked about how they were enemies to joy and thanksgiving. And each one of them was oh, so convicting. Um, I needed to hear those things that he was saying because that is how I am. I needed to hear those things because I lose interest in fighting against them a lot. I excuse them. I justify them. I stop fighting because I just grow tired of the fight. So sometimes I feel like I have made so little progress in battling my sin that I don't want to keep trying anymore. I question whether my life would really be that much better off if I kept fighting. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I just allowed myself to indulge the flesh every once in a while. I think that often, and I know I'm not the only one that thinks that way. No temptation is uncommon to man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. We all wrestle with these thoughts. We're all facing these temptations, not only temptations for sin, but the temptation to give up on fighting those particular sin struggles. We all experience those things. As Come Thou Fount, we, um, I didn't tell Eric to, to um, sing this song, but um, I, was, I was thinking about the, that song. I, it's my favorite hymn, first of all, but... Um, I was thinking about it as I was preparing the sermon and one of the lines is so profoundly true of the state of our hearts. We sang just a little while ago, 
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You guys, that is true of every single one of us. And I probably don't need to tell you that. You already know that about yourself. So how can we take hold of Paul's promises that God will complete the good work that he started in us? How can we do that? How can we actually believe that when we see how quick we are to turn from him? How can we know that we will persevere till the end? How can we know that we won't strive to do good but just fail, do the wrong thing? We've got to have an answer because deep down we all know we will fail if left to ourselves. We are too fickle, too comfortable with our sins, too fearful, too weak to succeed by ourselves. If history has proven anything, it's that human beings are good at one thing, and that is turning away from God. And we aren't exceptions to that fact. So friends, that is where the power behind Paul's promise comes in. And this is where the, the most incredible aspect of Paul's encouragement here comes to full, like, bloom. How do we know it will be fulfilled? It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. He is the one who will make it happen. That's the key. He is the power behind Paul's promise and prayer. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. We will be faithful because he is first faithful to us not the other way around. The good work will be completed because God is the one doing it, not us. I want us to look back at the passage, and this time, I want you to pay particular attention to who is doing what in each of these verses. So look with me one more time at verse six. In Philippians 1, verse six, Paul says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't focused on this reality, but notice there, who is working? God is the one doing it in these verses. Nothing in verse six is our work. It's all God. God began the good work in us, and God is the one that's going to complete it. Now, look with me again at verses nine through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So first of all, notice that this is a, this is a prayer here. Paul isn't just telling the Philippians to force themselves to grow in love with knowledge and all discernment so that they would approve what is excellent. Paul's not commanding them to do that. He is first and foremost, like he wants them to recognize that and do that, seek those things. But this is first and foremost a prayer. He is praying to God that it would happen. So even though the Philippians are the ones that need to experience the growth, and they can actively seek that out, it is God who Paul is directing his attention to here. He knows that if God doesn't cause the growth to happen, it won't happen. He is the source of it. That's why he's praying. And then notice in verse 11, 
How are we made pure and blameless? We are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And where does that come from? Through Jesus Christ. Not through our efforts, not through our work, not through our achievements and success and doing the right thing all the time, but through Jesus Christ. Again, our ability to stand pure and blameless before God is not due to what we can do ourselves. And that's good, because if it was dependent upon us, we would fail. We will stand pure and blameless before God because of the righteous work that Christ did on on our behalf. Is that not what the gospel is? Paul sums it well later on in in this letter. Uh, Flip to Philippians 3. Look with me at verses 8 through 12. Paul says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Paul presses on to seek love and truth, purity and blamelessness because he has already been made Christ Jesus's. And it is not the righteousness of his own that comes through the law and obedience, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the gospel The gospel is that Jesus lived the righteous, obedient life that we couldn't, and he died on the cross for us on our behalf so that we could be recipients of grace and his righteousness. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died the death that we could not bear to give us the life we could not earn. For all who have faith in Jesus Christ, their sins are paid for on the cross and his righteousness is bestowed upon us. We are declared pure and blameless by God through our faith in Jesus Christ, not because we are perfect and pure and blameless. That's not what purity and blamelessness here here means. Paul himself even says, I am not already perfect. That's not what we're striving for. We're not striving for perfection in this life. We're just called to be faithful and trusting in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. He is the pure and spotless lamb, not us. Therefore, being pure and blameless is a matter of faithful dependence upon Christ, not achieving perfection, which is something none of us can do, but something we so often think we need to do. So what do I practically mean by that? I mean this. Let's say, and maybe this is true for some of you right now, you are deeply discouraged because you are facing debilitating anxiety or fear or depression yet again. This is is something that hits close to home for me. 
I experience recurring bouts of deep depression. Um, I've been experiencing one lately. Maybe you experience chronic health issues. They just keep coming back. They never subside. Maybe you experience the same temptation. Maybe, maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's an addiction to drugs. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe there's so many different things that it could be. Like it could, like it could be the things that I mentioned earlier. Feeling entitlement, selfishness, comparing yourself to others. There's so many things that we experience that aren't right or good that exhaust us, partly because they're just exhausting, partly because it's so discouraging to think, when is this going to subside? When is this gonna be gone from my life? Sometimes we don't wanna keep pushing and we lose hope because it seems like we're not seeing any victory or growth. It just keeps coming back with the full strength that it's been all along. And we wonder, when are these old problems and patterns ever going to leave us? In those moments of doubt or hopelessness, instead of disparaging, instead of giving up, I want you to stop asking yourself, am I capable of changing? When you see that you're not changing in the ways that you're not who you want to be, don't ask yourself, am I capable of bringing about this change. Stop asking yourself, am I strong enough for this? (laughs) Because if you ask yourself that, the honest answer is no, you're not strong enough. You aren't capable of bringing about those changes. Not truly, maybe temporary behavior changes you could make, but heart, profound, fundamental changes to yourself, you can't cause those things to happen. The answer is no. (laughs) If you ask yourself that question, there's a reason you're discouraged. Because the answer is, yeah, there is no hope in you being the cause of that change for yourself. But again, that's not the point. You aren't the one doing the work ultimately. So the question I want you to ask yourself in those moments when you're discouraged and losing hope In the battle, I want you to ask yourself not, am I strong enough to keep going? I want you to ask, is God faithful? Is he strong enough? Is he trustworthy and good? Does he uphold his promises? Does God change? And the beautiful reality is, the answer to all of those things is, yes, God is good. God is trustworthy. He does not change. He upholds his promises. He is faithful to his people. And we know that because he sent his son to die for us. And he, as the son, died on the cross for us. If he was willing to do that, he will see all of his promises through to the end for us. By asking that question, not What can I do? But what does God promise to do? That gives us a hope that is unshakable. That's what I mean by holding to this promise, by looking to the source and power of that hope, which is not ourselves, it is God. 
I want you to trust and hope in him. So let me say it again. You cannot make yourself pure and blameless by doing all of the right things. That is not what Paul is calling the Philippians to. He's calling them to trust and depend upon Christ. That is his encouragement to them, to grow in love and truth by remembering his love and faithfulness to them. And that's what every single one of us should do. And that offers us incredible encouragement and hope and joy, even when we are struggling with hopelessness. If we do that, Christ will make sure the work that started in us will be completed. I, fo- I want to finish with reading what Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. He says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, and Redeemer Church, I want you to hear this and know this. Our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It is true because of Christ's power that we will be able to to believe, again, Think about come thou found, what we sang earlier. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing your sovereign grace. That will be true of us because of Jesus Christ. Trust that, or better yet, trust and seek him, and you will grow in love and truth approve what is excellent, and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We will be glorified, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. For God will complete the good work he started in you as you grow in love and truth through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray that we as a church would trust and know and experience that reality this morning and every days of our walks with you. Father, grant us faith to persevere. Grant us grace to trust that your mercies are new every morning and that you are faithful And let us know that that is true when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And God, let us be ministers of that encouragement and truth to others who don't know you. Father, if there are those who don't know you here this morning, I pray that they would see their need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness and that they would turn to him in faith and dependence. God, help us to be a church not only 
takes heart in these promises, but spreads these promises to the world for the sake and exaltation of of Jesus Christ to your praise and glory. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.